You know, some things are just great together, right? Some things just are meant to go together. Uh, peanut butter and jelly, yeah? Mustard and mayonnaise, not Miracle Whip, right, Mom? I don't know who invented that, but it was sinful. It's whipped sugar. I don't even know what it is. Okay. Does anybody, does anyone in here like Miracle Whip? Really, Kristen? I expected more. I expected more. So disappointed. No, I'm just kidding. We could still be friends. Yeah, we could still be friends. We're good. Pizza and ranch. Anybody? Pizza and Okay. Praise God. Yeah, like two parts, you know, like 60% ranch, 40% pizza. Socks and shoes. Some of you guys never wear shoes. Some of you guys just wear socks and sandals. Okay. Hot chocolate and marshmallows. Good stuff. Okay. With whipped cream. That's just a pre-melted marshmallow. That's all whipped cream is. Okay, that's all I got on my list. Some things just go together, okay? Uh, and, and this morning, I think we're going to see is that probably one of the most powerful pairs, probably one of the most powerful things that go together are these two things, God's promises and our prayers, okay? Promises and prayers. These two things are meant to come together, like two-part epoxy. Have you guys ever used two-part epoxy, the two little tubes? You squeeze them out, and when they mix together, it creates this cohesion, the same thing is true of God's promises in our prayers. They form together a powerful bond. And some people might ask the question, they might go, well, aren't God's promises, should, should, you know, don't God's promises sort of undermine our prayers? Because if God already said he's going to do something, then why do we even need to ask him to do it, right? Well, we're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit this morning, because I think that's a question a lot of people have. You know, if God already knows what he's going to do, what's the What's the point of praying? What's the point of asking him? And I think that the reality, what I really want to prosecute, what I think our text really prosecutes this morning is that we think about prayer wrongly. We think about prayer as only petition rather than also partnership. Prayer is not just about trying to get God to change things. Prayer is also about partnering with what God is doing. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. But John 14, 14, just real quickly, Jesus said something really interesting. I think it's one of the more interesting things that he said. He said the following. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then just to, to be clear, he says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's a pretty strong statement. What does that mean? Well, does that mean that Jesus' name becomes some kind of a magic word that we can deploy and get whatever we want? No, it doesn't mean that. Here's what Jesus is trying to communicate to his guys. He's trying to communicate that there's a new administration breaking into this world. And because there's a new administration breaking and there's a new king, and because there's a new king, there's an entirely new agenda, the agenda of Christ and his kingdom that's, that's literally in breaking into the world. And what he's saying is he's saying, if you're in my kingdom, you become my ambassador. And therefore, you have the power and the freedom to walk in the, the, the objective of my kingdom. 
okay? We, are, we have representative authority of Christ because he purchased it. Now, that doesn't mean we get a blank check. I remember I used to go get my hair cut uh, when I was a kid, and I'd ride my bike to the barber shop, and uh, the, the prices, I think they fluctuated or something because a lot of times my, my parents would give me a check, um, but they would pre-fill it all out, right? So like, I couldn't change the name, you know, to like whatever I wanted. It was, it was pre-filled out for the barber, but the price was left blank so that, you know, the, the, I think they let the barber fill it in actually, which is kind of crazy, small town. I don't know. What were you thinking? Um, <laughs> anyways, the, the idea was I had this check and, and it could be filled in. It wasn't a completely blank check. It couldn't be written to anybody, but it was a check. And that, that was directed, and, and I had the, 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 the freedom to, to join into the will of what that check was designed to do. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying that if you pray in my name, he's saying then you're, you're inconsistent with my will. See, the name of Jesus, we miss this in our culture, the name is synonymous with the nature. Jesus is saying to pray in my name is to pray in my will. In other words, if you're asking for God to do or for me to do what I'm wanting to do, the answer is Yes. So the prayer matches with the promise. They're synonymous realities. So we don't just ask God to do anything and and he's gonna do it because we put the name Jesus on there. We ask God to do what God's wanting to do and the answer is yes. We pray consistent with his will. If we know God's word, we will know God's will and our prayers will be heard, okay? Our text, I think, is a beautiful example of this dichotomy, of this reality, of how these two things, promises and prayer, interact with one another. Our text, I think, is a perfect example. It should drive us to pray, but it should drive us to pray prayers that are deeply rooted in the promises of God. I think our our prayers should be deeply rooted in every layer of the promises of God, the word of God, the the declarations of God, the things that he has revealed, the, the agenda of his administration that is breaking into this world in the name of Jesus. So praying in the name of Jesus is not just saying in the name of Jesus. Praying in the name of Jesus is praying under the authority and in the direction and under the will of Jesus, according to his word and according to his promises. That's the kind of prayers that we want to pray. So today we pick up in Daniel chapter 9, if you're there, uh, we're, we're going to take a look at this prayer. And it's kind of an interesting break if you've been with us in the book of Daniel. We've been looking at these big apocalyptic visions, right? Horns and little horns and beasts and all of this kind of crazy stuff that, that is referring to these kingdoms and these kings and these empires, this predictive prophecy that, that Daniel has been seeing. And what we're going to get is we're going to get a little break from that and we're going to see a prayer of Daniel on behalf of his people. Now, chapter nine is probably the most famous chapter, believe it or not. Uh, you might think it's Daniel in the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or something, but in reality, there's been more stuff written about Daniel chapter nine than any other chapter in the book of Daniel. And it, and it contains within it probably one of the most controversial prophetic passages in the whole Bible, but we're going to look at that next week. <laughs> so, so Daniel chapter nine is extremely famous, but, but, but unfortunately, I think, I think Daniel nine gets... Uh, the, the prayer gets missed over for, for the, the really controversial 70 weeks prophecy, which we're going to look at next week. Th- this week, we're going to look at the prayer, and it connects to the prophecy that we'll see next week. So, so be sure and come back, because these two really go together. Now, we know that Daniel was a man of prayer, right? We've seen that in the narrative uh, as we've gone through this book, uh, verse by verse. In chapter 2, remember, the, um, King Nebuchadnezzar was threatening to take the lives of Daniel and his, and his friends. And so what did Daniel do? He went to his friends and he said, we got to pray. 
We gotta petition the Lord. We gotta ask God to intervene. And then in chapter six, again, we see Daniel praying. We see that the, the satraps were trying to entrap him. And they were trying to do so by um, getting uh, the king, uh, Darius, the same king we're going to see today, to make a decree that if anybody prayed to anyone through anyone other than Darius, then they would have to be thrown into the den of lions. And of course, these guys knew that Daniel prayed multiple times a day. Okay, and so, so we've seen that develop. Now, we also saw in chapter six in the way that Daniel prayed, a very important detail for this morning. And that was that when Daniel prayed, he would go into his house and he would face what? Jerusalem. He would face Jerusalem. Now remember this about Daniel. Okay, Daniel now in our text in chapter 9, he's about 80 years old. He was a teenager when he was ripped out of his home and taken away exile by Babylon. When Babylon took over Jerusalem, they took multiple waves. The first wave, Daniel was caught up in that. They took sort of the cream of the crop, uh, the best and the brightest, the royals, those that were, that were kind of had the pedigree uh, to be, uh, become the cabinet of King Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel's ripped out of his home as a teenager and he's lived his entire life in exile. He's lived his entire life out of Babylon. But what we see about the way Daniel prays is that even though Daniel was taken out of Jerusalem, Jerusalem was never taken out of Daniel. His attention, his focus, his heart, his passion is always set on God's city. He, he has this deep longing, even as an old man now into his 80s, he has this deep longing to return home. And that sentiment is shared not only by Daniel, but by all of the exiles, by all of these Jews who, who are living in a, in a foreign land, as strangers and as pilgrims, they want to go home. And remember, their home has been ransacked. Temple's been destroyed. The wall's been broken down. It's, it's gone to seed. The weeds are growing over it. There's livestock walking through the city of Jerusalem. And everybody knows it. And this is extremely bothersome to, to Daniel. He wants to see the city restored. By the way, this is the whole backdrop for the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. God sends this people eventually back to go and rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple uh, itself. So Daniel, he, he's an intelligent man. He's a prophet. He's very educated. And he is very aware of God's word, which is what we're going to see this morning. He studies God's word. He knows the Bible. Okay, And when I say the Bible, I mean the, 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 the biblical texts that were available at the time of Daniel. Okay, And he's, he's familiar with these. He's studying these. And as he's studying, he's starting to notice patterns emerging about the times and the seasons that he's living in. One of them that, that would be irrefutable would be a prophecy made in Isaiah chapter 41. You can jot that down and study it on your own. But Isaiah was a prophet that lived about 200 years before Daniel. And he made this very specific prophecy that there was going to be a king of Persia by the name of Cyrus. And that Cyrus would come and he would actually be the one to commission the rebuilding of God's city. Now here's Daniel and right at the moment that this prayer is prayed, right, around, right at the moment this prayer was prayed, Daniel notices, gets news that, hey, what do you know? Persia just took over Babylon and guess who the king was that did it? Cyrus. So Daniel's going, man, this is, this is kind of crazy. Could it be? Is it time? Is it time to go home? Is our, is our time up? And then Daniel's interacting with these, these texts, these scrolls from the prophet Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was a contemporary of Daniel. He actually lived a generation before. They had some overlap. But Jeremiah lived before and during the exile. He stayed back in Jerusalem. And, De and Jeremiah made some very specific prophecies about when Israel was going to get out of Babylon and get to go home. Let me read one for you. Probably the one, I mean, I'm guessing, but this is probably the one Daniel was reading in our text that inspires this prayer. He says in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, 
uh, God says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. 70 years. It's very specific. For I know the plans that I have for you. You guys know this verse. Declares the Lord plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. You will seek me with all, or when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now, this was prophesied many, many, uh, uh, you know, decades before Daniel praised this prayer. And so he somehow has access to these scrolls of Jeremiah. Now, Daniel was a pretty wealthy, probably pretty, he was pretty successful, pretty powerful. I would imagine he, he had the ability to bring some of the scrolls of the biblical text into his study. So I can imagine old Daniel, you know, uh, sit, sitting there, pouring over the, the prophecies of Jeremiah, trying to put it all together, asking this question, when are we going to get to go home? And, and he comes across Jeremiah 29, and he goes, 70 years, 70 years, 70 years, 70 years. He's doing the math, Right? And he's thinking back, well, what was 70 years ago? Well, what do you know? It was just about 70 years ago that we were exiled. So here we have Daniel interacting with a promise of God regarding when his people are going to get to go home. How interesting is that? Now, that's not the only thing Daniel reads in Jeremiah, though. Not only does he read the promise, he reads a scathing report card about how the Jews have been handling the discipline of the Lord. Because see, what we also find in Jeremiah 27 and 28 is we find all of this narrative about how even though God had kicked them out of, of, of Jerusalem and exiled them, they're still not listening to God. They're still propping up false prophets like Hananiah. They're still plotting and trying. They're, they're not surrendered. They're not fully obedient yet, even in the midst of this hard discipline. So Daniel's heart is immediately Awoke, awokened, awakened, arosen, arisen, woke up, whatever. His heart comes alive, okay? There it is. Comes alive as he interacts with this reality that God has promised that he's gonna send him home and that it's probably just about time. And then he's looking at Israel and he's thinking, but man, are they really, have they really, have we learned our lesson? Are we ready to go home? Is God really gonna do this? And it's this backdrop that creates the setting for the prayer that we're going to interact with this morning. So Daniel, stirred to the core by God's word, he bursts into this prayer of contrition and confession and petition on behalf of the nation of Israel. He begins to pray as an intermediary on behalf of Israel, God, can we please go home now? Now, catch this. This is not a prayer uh, asking God, God, can you love us again? Because what do we know about the exile? God never stopped loving Israel. God went with Israel. This wasn't punishment. This wasn't punitive. This was discipline. God is working things out of his kids. He loves his kids. He went with them into, into, into Babylon. So this isn't a prayer of God, please love us again. This isn't a prayer of God, please be with us again. This is a prayer of God, can we go home now? I want to go home. Is there a sense in which like, we share this longing with Daniel? We're kind of in a similar place, man. God, can we go home now? Can we have our city? Of course, our city is not physical, you know, Jerusalem like it was for him. Our city is new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth. Revelation 21, we're waiting for the new world. And we, we long for it. We want to go home. 
So Daniel prays this prayer on behalf of his people. And there's three things you'll see as, as we go through the text, and we're going to move through it kind of quickly, and then we'll come back and make some observations. But I want you just to see, this isn't the outline, I'm just going to want you to see these as they go. Daniel, first, he's going he's to confess the sin of his people, and he's going to include himself in it. Okay, he's going to confess the sin of his people. Then he's going to accept the consequences that God has given. And then lastly, he's going to ask God. He's going to petition God to please fulfill this promise and send his people home. So let's work our way through it. I'll, I'll do it really quickly, and then we're going to come back and make some, some, some kind of observations. So verse 1. Everybody ready? You guys know what's going on here? Okay, cool. In the first year of Darius, okay, we've talked about this guy. This was the, the first king that we're aware of under the Persian Empire. Now, Cyrus is the main king of Persia. We don't know exactly who Darius is. Some people think it is Cyrus. We're not going to get hung up on that. We've talked about it already. But whoever this King Darius is, we read about him in chapter 6, and it's about 538 BC. And the Babylonian Empire has just fallen to Persia. Okay, so there's a new administration in town. The son of Ahasuerus by descent of a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of the reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Okay, so we've already discussed this. Daniel's sitting and he's pouring over the scrolls of the prophet Jeremiah and he's looking and he's doing the math and he's, he's, he's considering God's promise of how he's going to get them home. And then it says in verse 3, I turned my face to God. I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. You know, there's, there's some cultural uh, context that needs to be done there a little bit. Uh, what does that mean? The Jews would have these things that they would do when they were trying to embody a deep set of grief. And one of them was to fast. Another of them was to wear sackcloth, this very uncomfortable sort of scratchy uh, cloth that they would wear. And then the third was to literally take ash and put it on their head. And what's all that about? Okay, what, what, what he's doing here is he is, he is proportionately responding to the seriousness of the situation. He's choosing to make himself as uncomfortable as he should be in order to react correctly to the direness of this place that they're in. I think we could learn from that a little bit, okay? Now, like, we, we live in a country that our entire economy is built on easier, right? Like, how do we make things easier? Although now there's, like, this whole cult of wellness thing where they're like, you should get in an ice bath, and you should, you know, lift heavy things and run really, really far. We're almost, like, pushing back against that. But, but for the most part, in our culture, we, we're all about easier, right? We're all about taking away the edge. I got a headache, take a Tylenol. Right? There's always something to sort of just take off the edge. What's interesting about the Jews and, and how God's people would interact with, with, with heavy things is sometimes they would intentionally choose not to take the edge off. Right? They would, they would intentionally choose to feel the full weight of what they need to feel so they respond correctly. And actually, I would suggest to you that's one of the purposes of fasting is, is sometimes we need to feel hungry. Okay, sometimes we need to feel hangry, right? Because we, we need to feel the seriousness of a particular matter. 
Now, I don't think this is something that uh, Daniel did all the time, but I think this is such an important moment. This is such a pivotal, crux, catalytic moment for the Jews that Daniel's like, I gotta feel the full weight of this. I gotta pray with full focus. I gotta be so hungry and so dirty and so uncomfortable that I remember exactly what the most important thing is right now. So his posture fits the occasion. I think we could learn from that. Now, he's gonna begin to confess the sins of his people. Look at verse four. It says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps, note the word, covenant. Guys, this whole prayer is so covenant-centric. You know what a covenant is? Covenant's an agreement. It's an agreement, and there are different kinds of covenants, but a covenant means there's multiple parties, and those parties make an agreement. Now, which covenant is he praying about in this text? He's praying about the Mosaic covenant, which is a covenant of works, by the way. That means that both parties are expected to hold up their end of the bargain, okay? As opposed to a covenant of grace, this is a covenant of works. God, see, let me just explain something really quick. God made a contract with the nation of Israel, Okay? He made a contract with the nation of Israel. It's the theocratic nation, the nation under God. He made this contract. He said, look, he, he did it in Deuteronomy, right? Uh, it's the Deuteronomic covenant, if you want the technical word. Okay, he, he made this, this said, I'll, I'll do this for you, Israel. And if you disobey me or you don't keep Sabbath or you put idols in the temple or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera this is what's going to happen. And one of the things that he told them was going to happen, he said, if you do not follow the covenant, if you, if you do not honor the covenant, I'm going to kick you out of your homeland. And and the city and your land is going to suffer. And your people are going to suffer. And and what do you know? For hundreds of years, that's exactly what Israel did. There was barely a time in the history of Israel where there was not a pagan idol in the holy place of the temple. Isn't that crazy? Idolatry, the worship of pagan and false gods crept its way into every corner of Judaism in its day. Uh, It was so bad. And so Daniel, what he's doing is he's, he's, he's taking the full knowledge and understanding that he has of of God's word, and he's going, I know exactly why we're in exile. We're in exile because we broke our end of the covenant. Verse, uh, continuing on here, he says, God who keeps covenant in steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. So their sin was not only that they walked in wickedness, their sin was also that God would continue to send prophet after prophet after prophet, and they would reject that truth. Verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. Remember, this is an honor-shame culture. So honor and shame is the currency of the day. So he's saying we deserve to be ashamed of ourselves. At this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Verse 8. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. In other words, it could not be clear which party in the covenant is at fault. Okay? We deserve to be ashamed. God has been fully honest, fully true in his end of the covenant. Israel is the cheating spouse. Okay, God is the faithful uh, party in this covenant. He makes that abundantly clear. 
Verse 10, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, that's Deuteronomy 28, 15, if you want to study that later. The servant of God has been poured out upon us because, notice he says, we have sinned against him. Daniel counts himself among his people in this. I mean, Daniel could have totally been like, oh, that was my parents, man, right? Not that we ever do that in our culture, right? Uh, our parents' generation screwed up everything, right? He doesn't do that. He counts himself among um, those who have offended God. Verse 12, he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. In other words, the fall of Jerusalem was unprecedented. It just hadn't happened before. So it was, it, was, it was astounding that it took place. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all the calamity that has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Now he's going to petition in verse 16. He's going to ask God to, to work. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our father, Jerusalem, and your people have become a byword. Uh, Byword, by the way, just means an example. You've made an example of the city among all who are around us. Now, remember, by the way, why is it so bothersome to Daniel that the city of Jerusalem is in ruins? Why is it so bothersome? Why is it so bothersome? It's just a city, right? It's just a place, just a geography. But here's what bothers Daniel, and we'll get more into this in a minute. What bothers Daniel is that the way the polytheistic world, that's people that believe that there's all kinds of different gods, the way the polyistic pagan world thought was, oh, see, we conquered the gods of the Jews. That means our gods are better than their gods. And remember, these kings, like Nebuchadnezzar at some point probably, and and certainly the Persian kings, and definitely Alexander the Great, they thought they were gods. So they're like, we conquered the god of the Jews. He's a wimp. Easy. Knocked him right out, right? And here's the Jews going, God, are you going to let them think that? See, Daniel's not concerned about his dirt or his land or his home. He's concerned about the name of God. He's saying, God, avenge your name. Show that you are the true and one, or one and true and high and lifted up, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods. Show your power. That's what's bothering Daniel here. He says in verse 17, Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his plea for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. What is at the center of Daniel's prayer, by the way? God is. God is at the center. We'll talk more about that. By the way, notice that he says, let your glory shine upon your sanctuary. What does that tell us about the sanctuary? It tells us that the sanctuary is like the moon. It doesn't emanate glory. It reflects glory. Okay? He's saying the temple has no glory unless it's reflecting your glory. Let your glory shine upon it. It's the same thing is true of us. 
We have no glory in and of ourselves. Our glory is a reflection of God. And when we are surrendered and submitted to God, his glory shines upon us and reflects off us. Remember that. He says, your sanctuary, which is desolate, grown over, verse 18. Oh, now this is key. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present, this is so important, listen. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. What a prayer. What a prayer. I read it quick because I I don't want to get lost in the weeds, okay? But you can see the big themes that Daniel is doing here. He's confessing corporately the sin of his people as a whole. He's accepting the righteousness of God's verdict. He's saying, you were right to discipline us, but God, now I'm asking you, can we go home? Can this period of time be over? Now let's, let's take a closer look at it. Uh, I want to talk mostly this morning, because I think this is what the, the passage really leads us to talk about. I want to talk mostly about the interplay between promise and prayer, okay? Between God says something, and then we get to ask God for something. How do those two things work together? That's what I want to mostly talk about this morning. As you can probably tell by reading it, Daniel's root system of his prayer is so intertwined into the word of God. It's entirely shaped by the word of God. So I think rather than take this prayer as some kind of a universal pattern for all prayer, because it's, it's really not actually. Uh, Jesus gave us that in the New Testament, if you want that. It's not a universal pattern for prayer. What it really is, is it is, it is a illustration of what produces prayer. And what produces prayer is God's word. That's gonna be what I'm gonna uh, argue this morning, is that what produces prayer is God's word, that God's promises produce our prayers. Our prayers should be sourced in, guided by, rooted in the promises of God. His promises should lead us to pray. That's what I think this text is supposed to get us to see this morning. So here's the question we're gonna run after. How did God's word inform, direct, and prompt Daniel's prayer? And consequentially, how should it do the same thing for our prayers? Okay, how did God's word inform, direct, and prompt Daniel's prayer? So we're gonna note, if you're you're an outliner, here it is. We're gonna note three ways God's word interacts with our prayers. Three ways God's word interacts with our prayers. Number one, we'll see this in the text. Number one, God's word clarifies our confession. God's word clarifies our confession. You know, Daniel is, is not taking a shot in the dark here as he confesses the sins of his people, is he? He is confessing the sins of his people with laser-guided precision. He knows exactly what Israel did. He knows exactly what they've offended in the covenant, how they've broken it. How does he know that? He knows it from God's word. <laughs> He's reading his Bible, guys. Do you see that? The, 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 this prayer is birthed out of uh, Daniel sitting there reading the prophet Jeremiah. He's reading God's word and it immediately brings conviction. But that conviction is specific and he knows exactly what to do with it. Okay? God's word clarifies our confession. Listen, I said this in my prayer earlier, but we read God's word so that God's word can read us. 
okay? We read God's word so that God's word can read us. There's a difference, and you probably know the difference if you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time. There's a difference between reading God's word and letting God's word read you, okay? The difference is reading God's word is an academic pursuit, or, or perhaps it's, it's just about getting a feeling or something, or you maybe just find it interesting or maybe just checking a box, Letting God's word read you is when you read something and you respond to it. You ever feel like, I mean, you ever, you ever reading God's word and you're just like, oh my goodness, how did God know that? The power of God's word to divide truth from our lies is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And that's exactly what God's word is doing for the prophet Daniel here in this moment. It is exposing to him that Daniel or that Israel is found wanting. And by the promises of God, it actually leads him to begin to petition God. You know, apart from the objective and surgical knife of God's word, we all grade ourselves on a curve, don't we? I can always tell when someone doesn't read their Bible because they seem very unconcerned about their own sin. And, and, and they might know the Bible really well, but there's a difference between knowing things and actually actively letting those truths sit on your chest the authority and the power and the gravitas of God's word has weight and it's supposed to read us. Not to lead us to shame and hiding, but to expose us so we can be forgiven, so we can experience grace. And that's exactly what God's word does here for Daniel. It drives him to the mercy of God. We need God's word to read us and we need it to read us every day. And you notice that Daniel lumps himself in to the sin of Israel. He doesn't leave himself out because God's word won't let him. He knows. Daniel was a good man, but he was not a perfect man. We know he was a sinful man. He needed grace. I'm gonna make a strong statement here. This might offend some people. I talk to a lot of non-Christians and I love them and I want them to know Jesus. I want them to follow Jesus. But a lot of times they have this false sense of a religious um, reality in their life because they pray. I, I, I often ask people, like, do you have a relationship with, with God? You start generic, right? And they're like, yeah, I pray. And then my next question is always like, who do you pray to? Oh, like, God. Okay. Well, God is a generic term. Who do you pray to? Who do you pray through? Okay. Just because you pray doesn't make you a believer. Okay. Who you pray to and who you pray through is what defines whether you're a believer. Okay. You pray through Jesus. Prayer without God's word and outside of God's covenant is at best navel gazing. Some of you guys are like, what's navel gazing? <laughs> navel gazing is, is, is a funny way of saying you're just looking at your own navel. You're just looking within. Okay. Most prayer in our culture, most prayer in our world, if it's not through Jesus and it's not to Jesus, it's, it's just an exercise of at, at best talking to yourself, at worst talking to some kind of a demon. We pray through Jesus. We pray to God the Father through the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's what prayer is. Now, I bring that up to say, if you're not praying with the root system in God's word, you're gonna pray all kinds of things. And you're gonna be praying to who knows who. God's word shapes and steers and corrects our prayer, okay? Prayer without God's word is like running in the dark without light. You may be running, but you're probably not moving. Okay, you're probably going in circles. And so I say that because a lot of people have this idea, I don't really need the Bible, I just need to pray because I can just talk to God. Okay, but who are you talking to? 
And is he talking to you? Because if you're not reading his word, then you're probably just talking to yourself. You, well, I hear from God. Well, well, maybe. How do you know? Do you know his voice? Because if you're not in his word, then you don't know his voice. And so you're just listening to your own thoughts and feelings and saying it's God. And you're going to get into all kinds of problems. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. What's he talking about? He's not talking about some inner dialogue. He's talking about the truth that's been expressed in the word of God. You know the, the shepherd, you'll know his voice. How do you know the shepherd? Through his revelation. Okay, through, through what he's given us to know about him. Praying does not make you a believer, but make no mistake, a believer makes you, being a believer makes you pray. Okay? So the first thing, God's word clarifies our confession. The second thing is God's word directs our petition. God's word directs our petition. I want you to see that Daniel knows his Bible well enough to know what to appeal to in his argument. And his prayer really reads kind of like an argument. You notice that? He's appealing to God here. But what does he appeal to? I want you to look more closely at verse 18. I think it's the most important verse in the chapter. Notice what Daniel uh, appeals to. He says, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see your, our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. Why? But because of your great mercy. Okay, Daniel knows the Bible. And what the Bible has told him is that if he goes to God and appeals to his own works or the works of Israel, he's on rocky ground. He's on thin ice. How does he know that? How does he get that? Well, he, how about Psalm 51? Okay, you know, Daniel lived after David. So David probably had Psalm 50. What's Psalm 51? Psalm 51 is the, the gut-wrenching prayer of confession of David after he gets caught uh, with the sin of Bathsheba. And, and it's very interesting because if, if you remember it, he says, maybe I should just go there really quick. Um, he, he says, do, 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 do. I thought to myself, I'll remember it when I get there. I should have wrote it down. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And later on in the same verse, he says, I would bring sacrifices if I thought it would help. But it's, I, I, I'm, at the, I'm, at, I'm at my wit's end. All I have is your mercy. That's all I have left. The same thing is happening here with Daniel. Daniel is coming to the Lord and he's going, Lord, we broke our end of the promise. And Daniel is not so dumb to try to argue with God that maybe they can squeak by by doing enough good things. Daniel is aware enough of the wretchedness of Israel that he appeals to one thing and one thing only. And it's not his report card. It's the nature of God. It's the mercy of God. Daniel, like David, throws himself at the very nature of God, which is merciful. Listen to me. The safest place in the universe you will ever be is wholly resting on the mercy of God. The most danger, listen, the most dangerous place you will ever be in your entire life is in some kind of a religious hypocrisy where you feel secure because you think you've done enough good stuff. Jesus was so hard on religious hypocrisy and he was so merciful to those who were just willing and ready to say, I'm broken. I need the mercy of God. This is it incredible? The gospel is here in Daniel. Daniel doesn't go to the theocratic covenant and try to argue 
that maybe they could squeak by. Daniel throws himself at the mercy seat of God. Please, God, according to your mercy. Now, there's something I need you to see here. And what I need you to see here is that Daniel knows something else. He knows that in order for God's people to be forgiven, God's people need a mediator, don't they? They need someone to stand in the gap between God and man. And Daniel is in a long list of men who throughout biblical history stood in the gap and were the mediator between God and man. But here's the problem. Daniel doesn't have the power to take away sin. He only has the ability to appeal to the mercy of God. So what do we need? What does Daniel remind us of? He should remind us of the fact that we need a greater Daniel. We need a greater mediator. And Daniel's praying on credit here. He's appealing to the future grace of God that would come in the person of Jesus Christ. We appeal to the mercy of God, not on credit, but on debit, right? We appeal to the mercy of God because Jesus has come. The greater mediator has brought us back to God the Father, has paid in full. The perfect sinless lamb has come and brought us back. Therefore, we can, uh, Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace because we have received what? Mercy. Mercy. We've received mercy. That's Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Paul tells Timothy, there's one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Daniel is not the ultimate mediator, but he reminds us of the ultimate mediator. He reminds us that we need to be brought before God. That's why Moses had to go up Mount Sinai. We need someone to mediate God the Father to us, and Christ has done that. Jesus said, I am the way. The way to what? The way to God. The only way, the only truth, the only life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We need to know this because oftentimes our prayers, if we're not careful, they can become uh, us appealing to God based on what we think we deserve. If we're not careful, we're not gonna, we have to come to God realizing I have, I have no report card here that's worth looking at. All I have is your mercy. And that's actually the safest place to be. But there's another thing he appeals to here. The other petition, the other, the other thing he petitions is in verse 19. He says, Lord, um, hear, Lord, forgive, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. How interesting is this? Daniel not only appeals to the mercy of God, he appeals to the glory of God. He says, God, will you send us home for your name's sake? Now, that, that's really hard for us to figure out, right? Because we have this hard idea that, we have this hard time really thinking about the idea that God is at the center of the universe. And we have this really hard idea, uh, we have this really hard time thinking about the idea that God is actually at the center of God. That God is about God. That God exists for God. And you're like, what is he, some kind of egotistical jerk? No, there's just nothing bigger or better for him to be about than himself. And for him to give you anything other than himself is actually child abuse. Did you know that? For him to give you anything other than his own glory. There is nothing greater in the universe than the creator of the universe. That's simple logic, right? The source of all glory is the greatest glory. So Daniel says, God, if anything, will you rescue us, not just because we want to go home and not just because you love us and not just because uh, it'd be nice, but because your name demands it. And we are attached to your name. See, God gave Israel his name when he made covenant with them. And when you come to God the Father in Jesus, he gave you his name. You, you're in covenant with God. 
So what I want you to see here is that when we pray big, biblical, Daniel-sized prayers, we don't put our own needs and our own wants and our desires at the center. What do we put at the center? The glory and the name and the sanctity of God. Now, that doesn't mean we don't include what we want, right? Where am I getting this? Well, let's think about the way Jesus taught us to pray. What did he say? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does hallowed mean? It means holied, set apart, high, lifted up, supreme, overall, the highest thing that there is. The first thing Jesus teaches his disciples to pray is saying, God, put your name at the center of everything. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, complete, total sovereignty manifested here as it is in the heavenly dimension. You are at the center of all things. Then he says, give us this day our daily bread. Do you see the matter of importance there? It's not that we don't ask God for bread. It's not that we don't ask God for provision. We should ask God for everything. But at the center of gravity of our prayers should be the name and the sanctity and the holiness and the supremacy of God himself. We appeal to God for the sake of God. God, save the lost so that you can glorify your name in the nations. Jesus, return and set up your kingdom here on earth to glorify your name among the nations. Because you're worthy of that. You're worthy of all glory and honor and praise and everything in the universe gets that except for fallen creatures. Every blade of grass is bowing to the creator of the universe because he's worthy and supreme and we as these creatures have defied that. Our greatest desire in fulfilling the great commission and, 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 and spreading the gospel and doing any kind of ministry should be to glorify the name of Jesus. That is the centerpiece of all existence should be the center of gravity, should be what your prayers are sourced in. The problem is not that we don't pray rightly, it's that we don't pray big enough. We're just thinking about what I want and what, what I think would be cool in my life. God says, sure, ask me, but let's make him the centerpiece of the whole thing. Let's calm down a little bit. <laughs> Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller said, we should not decide how to pray based on the experiences and feelings we want. Instead, we should do everything possible to behold our God as he is and our prayers will follow. The promises of God lead to the prayers of his people. It's when we behold the reality of God that we can't help but pray. And we go from just trying to change what God's doing to wanting to get on board with what God's doing, which is my next point. The third thing here, God's word galvanizes our passions. And not only does God's word clarify our confession, it directs our petition. Number three, it galvanizes our passion. What does galvanize mean? It means it supercharges it. It, it, it excites it, it awakens it, it arouses it, brings it to life. God's promises should bring to life your prayers, not stifle them. People have this wrong understanding about the sovereignty of God, that if I have a high view of the sovereignty of God, then I'm not gonna ask God to do anything. That's wrong. It's actually false. The higher view that you have of God's sovereignty, the higher the prayers you should pray. Daniel has this very counterintuitive response to this, doesn't he? God says, I'm going to put him back after seven years. And Daniel's like, I better pray for that. What? You would think Daniel's response to that would be like, well, I guess God's going to do it, so I'm going to go take a nap. Wouldn't you think that? Daniel's reading the book of Jeremiah. Oh, 70 years. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. I'm going to bed. 
It's not what Daniel does. He fasts, puts ashes on his head, he gets his sackcloth out, and he prays, and he prays, and he prays, and he petitions God. What does this teach us? It teaches us that the promises of God activate the prayers of, of his people. We have to see that. God's promises bring confident direction, not apathetic inaction. Why? Because when we know God's gonna go there, we wanna go there too. God, you're already ahead of us. We wanna go where you're going. I'm not a surfer, okay? But I was thinking about surfing when I was writing this sermon and I'm thinking about what does a surfer do? The surfer doesn't try to create a swell. The surfer doesn't try to steer a swell or a wave. The surfer looks for where the wave is coming and he seeks or she seeks to get in the middle of the barrel, right? Where is it moving? Our prayers should be informed by the promises of God. God, we wanna pray what you're doing. We want to pray what you've said explicitly that you're wanting to do. It's what Jesus said when he said, pray anything in my name. And the answer is yes. God, what do you want to do? What, what have you said you want to do? Let's pray for that. That's exactly what Daniel's doing. He's praying that God would do what God already said he would do. It's exactly where he is. He's right in the barrel of what God is doing. Prayer is not just trying to change God's direction. It's partnering with God's intention. Here's the beautiful reality. The beautiful reality is that God's gonna do stuff and he actually wants you to join him in it. That your prayers are considered in that doing. It's an incredible reality. Let's conclude here. In the book of Revelation, I want you to see this because I think this drives home the point here. In the book of Revelation in chapter five, we see this incredible scene where John the apostle is beholding the lamb of God. And God the Father is holding a scroll in his hand. And you say, what is the scroll? The scroll is, in, in one sense, it's the title deed to the cosmos. In another sense, it's also, it's, it's kind of the, uh, the events that are going to take place. It's the, uh, you could call it the uh, destiny of humanity is the scroll. Okay, the destiny of humanity. And it's sealed with seven seals. Follow me on this. One of the angels cries out, who is worthy? Who is worthy to unlock and unleash the destiny of the future of humanity? And John, the apostle, begins to weep because no one on heaven or earth is worthy to open the seals. Nobody's worthy. But then, says in, in uh, chapter five, it says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the rod of David is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So Jesus is worthy. He controls the destiny. That's the point here. Don't miss it. Jesus controls the destiny of the future of the human race and of all of his creation. He is worthy. Why is he worthy? Because he bought the title deed of the cosmos on the cross. He owns it his kingdom, his administration. He holds all the power. He's worthy. He opens, he is worthy, and he begins to open the seals, one after another after another. And if you read it, you'll see that each seal releases a, a different series of judgments on the earth. But here's what I want you to see. When we get to the last seal, there is a uniqueness to this last seal. And we read about it in Revelation 8.1. It says, when the lamb opened the seventh seal, 
there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer. What is a censer? It's like a, a, a thing that would hold incense in the temple. Okay, this is all temple imagery. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So here we have, listen to me, we have the prayers of the saints. Which ones? All of them. All the prayers. Think about every prayer you've ever prayed. All the prayers of all the saints are taken and they're put into the censer. They're put in and they're burned with the incense. Why? Well, we'll see. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumbling and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. What happens is that the prayers of all the saints are taken and they are combined with fire from the altar and it becomes the judgment of the earth. You say, well, that's just so mean. You ever been sinned against to a point that, that just made you want to kill somebody? You, you ever have your child harmed and you had to resign justice to God and say, God's going to have to do what God's going to, you know, this world is so intrinsically evil. I can't, I can't even begin to communicate to you how evil this world is. The judge of all the earth is going to release judgment. And every prayer ever prayed by every saint that ever felt like maybe his or her prayer was not heard in that moment is going into that censer and is going to be released in the form of the judgment of God. So we learn three things here. First of all, we learn that God enjoys our prayers. It's a sweet smelling aroma. Did you know, do you know that? I need you to hear these things this morning. God loves your prayers. He loves your prayers. He loves them. The second thing we need to see is that God collects them. They're not lost. They're precious. He'll never forget one. The third thing I need you to see is that there is coming a point where God will deploy them. Your prayers find partnership in the eternal and sovereign work of God to redeem the universe. God invites you to join with what he's doing by praying prayers that he will later use to finish the work of redemption in this world. Have you ever thought about that? He wants you to pray and he's going to use those prayers. <laughs> what an incredible privilege that we have bought by the blood of Jesus. You know, Jesus died for Daniel. He died for Daniel. He died for you, he died for me if, if we believe in him, if our faith is in him and our prayers are heard. And here's what Satan knows. He knows that God loves it when you pray. So he doesn't want you to pray. Here's what Satan knows. Satan knows that God gave you authority when you pray. And so he doesn't want you to pray. Here's what Satan knows. That when you pray, God speaks, God works, God heals, God brings change, and he doesn't want that. And if you ever notice, there is no force in this world that is more strange and out of nowhere 
as the force that keeps you from praying. It's the craziest thing. He knows how effective the prayers of the saints are. And so he tries to undermine your confidence. Okay, Sam, what's the point of praying if God already knows what he's going to do? I don't know. But what I do know is that God made a world and then he put people in it for the purpose of partnering in his kingdom reign. God could have done it without you, but yet he wanted to do it with you. So God can do stuff without you praying, but he actually would rather do it with you. I have a riding lawnmower at my house and uh, it's not mine, it's the, the landlord's and, and, and so I gotta go out and know, you know, mow the North 40. And, and occasionally I love to take the kids on to the lawnmower. Do I need to have the kids on the lawnmower? I'll even let them steer sometimes, right? Unless they start to go into the house, you know? Tim Keller always says, you know, God will either give you what you ask for or he'll give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knew, okay? So I'll let the kids steer. And it's a joy to me. Do I need them to steer? Do I need them on the lawnmower? It's a joy to them. And it's a joy to me that God would let us participate in his redemptive work in the universe through our prayers is an incredible privilege. Does he need us to do it? No. But we get to. So let's do it. Amen? Would you stand with me? Father, we thank you so much for passages like these. I would not have thought to pray or to teach on prayer this week. Did not enter into my mind. But God, we're so thankful that the word leads us. God, we're thankful for this great gift of prayer that right now we're not talking to ourselves, we're talking to you and that we have full access, Father, because Jesus, you bought that access. We come in your name. We're in covenant with you. We're your kids. Thank you, God, that every prayer that's ever been prayed by every saint in this room is heard and stored and precious and to be used. We long for that moment where, Jesus, you will come and take the scroll and you will open it. And we will finally be done with evil, sin, and death, and brokenness. We will be given a new world, new bodies, full access to your presence. God, we pray that we would be people that pray. That like Daniel, we would take serious this great opportunity that we have to mediate for the lost. Lord, may we never believe Satan's lie that we are wasting our time or wasting our breath when we ask our Heavenly Father to move. Lord, make us a people of prayer. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, love you guys. Have a great Sunday. Yeah.